Hallelujah. Amen. Father, we acknowledge and proclaim your holiness. The fact that you are perfect in all who, that you are perfect in all that you do. From eternity past to its appointed time, you have ordained the end and the beginning and the means whereby this entire plan of redemption has unfolded the great hope of salvation that we read about in your holy scriptures. Lord, we, we uh, proclaim this and thank you for your holiness, that you are perfect in the sum of your being. You are amazing and above and glorified and magnified. But also, Lord, this morning we thank you that you have purifying power in your gospel to make us holy as well, to cleanse us from sin, to purify and sanctify us that we might be found worthy of your presence. We know that the cleansing agent of your work in this regard is the blood of Jesus Christ. And by the shed blood of that sacrificial lamb, Christ our Lord, that perfect and holy sacrifice, we are deemed worthy to be in the presence of an almighty God. We thank you that in our justification, this once and for all act of absolutes, forgiveness and salvation has taken place when Jesus Christ died on Calvary. It has taken place for each of us when we confessed and believed. Furthermore, we thank you that you continue to shape us into your image so that more and more of our life in sanctification reflects the beauty and the holiness of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This morning, as we read your word, we pray two things. For those who are yet lost, dead in their trespasses and sins, we pray that the word of God would call them unto justification, holiness in the first place, bowing before the righteousness of Jesus Christ, admitting their sin, and receiving the cleansing of His gospel, His grace, His blood alone. For those who are in Christ this morning, we pray that the exhortation, the encouragement, the warnings, the instruction of Your Holy Word would further sanctify us to reflect the image of Christ in us, the hope of glory. That our thoughts, our words and deed might more reflect the beautiful and perfect righteousness that we see outlined in Holy Word and embodied in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Hallelujah. This morning we have the privilege of turning in the scriptures to Genesis 27. I encourage you to turn there with me today as we continue in our Genesis series and as we continue in the record of Isaac and his lineage. As we remarked last time we were here, Isaac has grown old. His eyes have grown dim physically, his eyes have grown dim spiritually, but he's not the only character who is falling short of the holiness of God and his standard of righteousness. We have four in view in chapter 27. Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau also give us some examples, give us examples of fallenness. In spite of all of this, God continues his plan of salvation, securing the covenant promise for the elect line. The Messiah family continues one more generation, and this is due only to the sovereign hand of God. Thus, the title of this morning's message, A Sovereign Blessing. The patriarchal or father, spiritual fatherly blessing of Isaac passed on to Jacob is not really Jacob's idea, or I'm sorry, it's not Isaac's idea in the least. He had the idea of blessing Esau instead. But as circumstances would have it, and ultimately the plan of God, it ends up being a sovereign blessing. Jacob receives the blessing ultimately because God is in control, not the plans or purposes, scheming and conniving of any of the other members in our story. 
Thus, the aim of this morning's message, and I believe the main takeaway from Genesis 27, is to magnify the glories of salvation, especially illustrated by contrast to sinners. Magnify the glories of salvation, the glories of our Lord, and this is illustrated in contrast to the shortcomings, the failures, the pitfalls, the depravity of the human heart. With this introduction, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word today? In reverence, let us hear the infallible and inerrant Word of Jesus Christ recorded in Genesis 27. We'll begin in verse 26 and read through 41. Here is the Word of God. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, Oh, see, the smell of my son is the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let the people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's son bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Verse 30. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn son, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, who was it that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came. And I have blessed him, yes, and he shall be blessed. 34, as soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you and all his brothers. I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? 38 Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O oh, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and, by, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother, Jacob. This is the word of God. You may be seated. A sovereign blessing indeed, and a stark contrast as well. There's a subtitle that could go with this message. My title being a sovereign blessing, a subtitle. God's word versus man's word. The faithfulness of the ultimate covenant keeper, Yahweh himself, continues to be the only redeeming element in this account of covenant succession and patriarchal blessing. If it wasn't for God overriding the will and the intentions of all four characters involved, what a tragic fallout this story would truly be. But somehow, against all odds, because God is sovereign 
and he alone can do righteously even through the actions of sinners, this story continues to show his glory by preserving his seed and passing along the blessing as God's sovereign plan would have it to the correct covenant appointed son, namely Jacob. Isaac's negligence in regard to the patriarchal blessing stands in contrast to the testimony of his father. Kids, who was Isaac's father? Remind us. Isaac's father. You guys remember? Anybody? Anybody? Starts with an A. Very good. Abraham. So the negligence, that means failure and duty of Isaac to pass along to the next generation in clear terms, the promises of God, is contrasted uh, to the testimony of Abraham, his father. Though Abraham had his share of faults and failures and read of them in great detail through our course in the book of Genesis, he had no delusions. Abraham, nevertheless, had no delusions as to God's purposes in the messianic lineage. That is to say, Abraham understood and affirmed the sovereign election of God in choosing Isaac as the child of promise. And Abraham proclaimed this without compromise, without uh, and unequivocally, he proclaimed this to his family via covenant, for instance, a covenant meal in Isaac's weaning ceremony in chapter 21, verse 8. This engendered the jealousy of Ishmael at the time. Why? Because the little boy, likely three years oldish at the time, was singled out in this ceremony as the covenant son of promise. This was right and proper for Abraham to identify God's purposes in the family lineage, and so he did so. Furthermore, Abraham obediently followed the voice of God to Mount Moriah. Remember this in chapter 22? And remember what the Lord referred to Isaac as, your son, your only son. So here's Abraham with his son, his only son, and that designation, only son, Abraham affirmed and obediently followed the Lord. And that only son designation meant specific called appointed, divine elect, covenant son, the one through whom the lineage of the Messiah would continue. Thus, in this event as well, Isaac was clear. Both Isaac, I'm, I'm sorry, Abraham was clear. Both Abraham and Isaac, they heard the word of God unequivocally affirming his sovereign purposes through the son of promise in that moment in Genesis 22. And so we have these, this by way of positive example. Our text today, however, documents the devastating confusion and consequences when the word of God is obscured in the hearts of men on account of their fleshly preferences. That's a lesson for us all. In today's story, the text that we covered today, building on our last message, it documents the devastating confusion and consequences when the word of God is obscured because of the fleshly preferences of the human heart. Now there's a showdown in these circumstances between the word of God and the word of sinful men, the will of sinners and the will of the Almighty. God's word, God's will wins in the end, but it is brought to bear with discipline and judgment. For Isaac and Jacob, these events would provide necessary rebuke and correction, and Rebekah too, if she would heed them. Yet for Esau, in, this, in his state of unrepentance, as the Bible goes on to affirm, there remains only curse and condemnation. Our response to this record of God's divine intervention, preserving the plan of redemption in spite of sinners, could well be the very confession that summed up the 
Hallel Psalms that we studied last week and we sang this morning. We sang portions of Psalm 118. The last verse in that psalm says the following, proclaims this, quote, O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Kids, I have four questions for you. In our story today, was Isaac good? Yes or no? No, is the answer. In our story today, was Rebecca good? Were her actions good? No. How about Jacob? Was his actions good in stealing the birthright or stealing the blessing? How about Esau? Was he good? No. You see, we only have one good individual to praise the Lord and to thank the Lord for, and it is the Lord himself in our account today. Therefore, we ought to give thanks to the Lord and only to the Lord, for he is good. And because his steadfast love endures forever, the blessing is secured to the next generation, but is done so sovereignly. It is accomplished by the miracle-working sovereign hand of a mighty God whose arm is never too short to save, even in spite of the gross and negligent sin of four sinners. Here's a heading for you. The blessing, or considering the blessing of Jacob in light of the following. Number one, context, verses 26 and 27. Number two, the content of the blessing, 28 and 29. Number three, the conflict that surrounded the moment, 38, 30 through 38, and then 41. And, and finally, the contrast, the proclamation against Esau in view, verses 39 and 40. There's much to say and much to deduce about the blessing of Jacob when we consider it in the light of these four aspects of our text. Context, content, conflict, and contrast. Yes, I was able to use four C's, so maybe you'll be proud of me for that. First of all, let's go to context, 26 and 27. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son, verse 27. This, of course, is Isaac speaking to Jacob, but he thinks it's Esau. So he, Jacob, but Isaac thinking Esau, came near and kissed him, verse 27. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. And of course, this is on the tail end of four guilty parties conspiring to mess everything up, it would seem. This event is complicated indeed due to the dysfunction in Isaac's home. We've identified this strife and conflict as the Esek and the Sitna in the household. Two Hebrew words meaning conflict and hostility, also two wells that Isaac named accordingly because he experienced conflict and hostility in the land. But now that conflict and hostility is evident in his own household. And this, we mentioned before, just by way of review, is illustrated in Isaac's uh, failing eyesight, if you will, in Esau's covenant compromise, in Rebekah's usurpation, proper family order, and Jacob's deception. These are four ways in which the context is full of strife, conflict, sin, family dysfunction. How would the Lord preserve the covenant line in the midst of this mess. Further, to add to it, we also have Isaac's ideals. As Isaac has grown older, some priorities, some preferences have bubbled up to the surface. And among them, just the sensory experience and the appreciation of a son who could hunt well and fill his mouth with game. 
And this was the motivating factor behind his blessing. Thinking it's Esau, Jacob, or thinking it's Esau, Isaac gives a, a, pro, a blessing as his son leans forward. As Jacob leans forward, wearing Esau's clothes, that smell of the field, you know? You guys have been out in the autumn raking leaves, and you have that smell of, you know, decaying leaves in the fresh air that clings to your clothes for a while. Well, Isaac loved that smell. That's the smell of my oldest son, the avid hunter, the man's man, the one who can take care of himself in a survival situation, who can hunt food, who can make that meal and fill my taste buds with that luxurious, delicious taste that I love so much. Oh, see, the smell of my son is the smell of the field that the Lord has blessed. Isaac's ideals are pretty trivial at this time. He places a priority on the sensory experience. His words, even of blessing, are inspired by the smell of the woods in the wilderness. And this might sound real dumb and foolish. Well, it is stupid. It is foolish on the surface. But lest we point all our fingers at Isaac, how many times, we must ask ourselves, how many times does our own immediate sensory experience distort our perspective on the content and application of God's word? That is to say, in our sin, we're all guilty of this. It may not be the smell of food that we're lusting after at any particular time, but it may be something else that we covet, something else that we fear, or something else that we're obsessed with, something else that holds our attention. These are the affections, the assumptions, the perceptions, the priorities, the fears, ambitions, that if we let them overtake our motivations, they inevitably, they always obscure the content and application of the word of God. How can we be free of these distorting influences in our fallen world? How can we be, what's a means that God might grant for us to put our temporal appetites aside and see things clearly? Not just be captive to our physical and fleshly blindness like Isaac was here. Well, let me submit, this is a purpose for prayer. When, how many times in the Psalms do we read the psalmist opening up with the confession of anxiety and frantic and his fear, concern, and spilling out his guts in kind of a lament that this just isn't fair and who are you and where are you, Lord? And especially considering the circumstances I'm in. There's a big difference between a psalm that opens with a lament and closes with a con confession of God's glory than this action motivated by short-term appetites here. You see, when David would bring his concerns and passions before the Lord in confession and repentance and praise and prayer, what he was doing was embracing God's means to set the things that obscure the clarity of our understanding of God's word aside and to work through that and ask the Spirit to change his heart perfect his spiritual eyesight, help him to confess and put aside the sins, the fears, the concerns, the ambitions, the desires, the appetites, the lust of the flesh that otherwise distort our vision and lead us to twist God's word. Isaac should have gone to prayer in this moment. All four of these characters, Isaac, Rebecca, Esau, Jacob, should have gone to prayer before they went to their own devices to move forward in this circumstance. Even although, and it's interesting how God in his sovereignty hijacks this blessing and against Isaac's intentions, it actually is a strong blessing. However, we see further in the text that it might have been a little deficient. The blessing focuses on prosperity and dominion and so forth. It is a powerful blessing, but there was a missing element. This element is later added, however, again, 
in God's sovereign order. This is added in 28.3. Isaac says then, having better perspective, his eyes being open, some repentance in view to Jacob, he declares, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Now we're talking. When Isaac confesses that and proclaims it over Jacob, now he's speaking the word of God. He's speaking the word of God that he agrees with and proclaims versus in this section here, the initial blessing was the word of God in spite of himself, his appetites, his ideals, his priorities and preferences. Now the context also includes, as we've mentioned, Jacob's scheming. A consequence of proceeding via deception in Jacob's case actually shows up later in his lack of faith and confidence after hearing his father unwittingly bless him instead of Esau. So to put it another way, since Jacob tricked his dad, he really didn't move with confidence that he was really blessed. You see, this is a consequence of not obeying God's means of moving forward. Jacob struggled with confidence that the blessing was legitimate. Why? Because he stole it. Because he tricked his dad. He knew that his dad intended to bless uh, Esau instead of him. Nevertheless, as we continue to mention, God is sovereign. Why do you think, connect these two dots, what I just said and this verse. This is Genesis 32. We're going to fast forward a little bit to verse 26. Genesis 32, verse 26. I'll go to 24. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Kids, question for you. Who is this guy that Jacob was wrestling with that night? Does anyone know? It was God himself. And Jacob, in this panic, desperation, says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Why the desperate need for this affirmation? Well, could it be in part because Jacob wrestled with the certainty of the blessing, knowing that he had tricked his dad and schemed to get it. God, in his mercy, after wrestling with Jacob, indeed does bless him demonstrates his authority and sovereignty over him and renaming him and appointing him to his call. The Lord intervenes mercifully in this situation. Nevertheless, it illustrates the point that Jacob's scheming led to an identity complex that the Lord addressed later. Finally, under context, we have this interesting assumption of another or assuming another. In other words, Jake, uh, Jake, I'm sorry, Isaac assumes I know I'll get these names mixed up at least once or twice in the message again. but um, I'm, So Isaac assumes that he is pronouncing a blessing on Esau, but in fact, it is Jacob. In other words, when he says, See, the smell of my son is the smell of the field that the Lord has blessed, this inspires him to say, May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of earth. The people serve you, the nations bow down, be Lord over your brothers, your mother's son bow down to you, and so on and so forth. You see, in uh, Isaac's short-sighted view, he imagined Esau as a guy that other men would respect, an avid hunter, 
skillful with the bow, a commanding presence, a fearful swordsman or adept with weapons, at least as weapons of choice in hunting, able to take care of himself and his enemies. That's the kind of guy, no doubt Isaac wrestled with, that people will respect. You see, Isaac no doubt felt that the, uh, the uh, dignity of his family line would best be trusted with the stronger and with the one who had accomplished through the strength of his arm providing for himself from the land and so on and so forth. But you see the mistake here? The mistake was looking to things of the flesh to affirm the covenant rather than the word of God. Because God had said in chapter 25, verse 23, to Rebekah and by extension, of course, to Isaac, two nations are in your womb. Two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And in spite of Jacob's weaker status physically, nevertheless, he was the chosen. Is this a pattern in God's calling? You bet it is. You remember the difference between Saul and David? David, the youngest among the brothers, a mere shepherd. Saul, who is he? Head and shoulders, the people's choice, above the rest, a king like the other nations. What does man look at? He looks at things like that, stature, strength, charisma, ability to command a room. What does God look at? He looks at the heart. God chose for Gideon just 300 men, though Gideon no doubt, no doubt felt under, you know, he, I'm sure he felt uh, overpowered with the thousands that he started with, given the Midianite numbers. Nevertheless, God pared down his forces so that God would get the glory. Again, in Deuteronomy, it is clear. God says, I chose you because of your weak and inferior status by way of numbers. Why? To show my glory when I show my power through this slave people, a ragtag bad by comparison by outward measure in defeating Pharaoh and the surrounding enemies on your way to the promised land. Church, this is the same for us today. If a demographer was looking across the culture of the United States or the world, the least likely to be the champions of history would probably be the Christian church, small and battered and rattled as she may appear right now. Nevertheless, don't be surprised. If God chooses the weaker, he always does this to confound the wise, foolishness to confound the wise, weaker to overpower the strong. This week, this quote came to me via... Pastor Joe Reed in one of our text threads. It's by J.C. Ryle. Such so an awesome quote. I want to give it to you to encourage you. Quote, but as I tell you, not to be surprised at the widespread skepticism of the times, so also I must urge you not to be shaken in mind by it or moved from your steadfastness. There is no real cause for alarm. The ark of God is not in danger, though the oxen seem to shake it. Christianity has survived the attacks of Hume and Hobbes and Tyndall, of Collins, Woolstone and Bolingbroke and Chubb and Voltaire and Payne and Holyoke. These men made a great noise in their day and frightened weak people, but they produced no more effect than idle travelers produce by scratching their names on the great pyramid of Egypt. Depending on it, depend on it, Christianity in like manner will survive the attacks of the clever writers of these times. I must admit, I recognize a few of those names, but not all of the clever writers that opposed Christianity at the time when Ryle was writing. But you know what? That only makes his point stronger, does it not? These names, all of them, will drift into obscurity and the name of Jesus Christ will survive. Why? Because though on the exterior we may be weak and feeble in number, if we stand on the covenant, 
the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church of Jesus Christ, regardless of her numbers. So be encouraged, saints. Isaac was guilty of looking at the outside. Nevertheless, God had a plan to exalt himself, preserve salvation, to bring the Messiah, even through weak and foolish means by man's accounting. And so he did through the unlikely line of Jacob. That's the context, in part, of the blessing of Jacob. Next, let's consider the blessing of Jacob in light of the content, the blessing itself. Verse 28, May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Here, in spite of himself, Isaac's blessing affirms the following promises. You could write these down if you're taking notes. Dominion, authority, or co- and covenant headship. They probably are in your notes there if you have a copy. Dominion, authority, and covenant headship. In spite of himself, he is prophesying here. Overridden, this sovereign blessing, his intentions to bless Esau are overridden by the sovereignty of God. And in this moment, he proclaims a reversal of the curse of Eden. Dominion where dominion was lost, authority where authority was ceded to the serpent, and the means whereby this reversal would happen, covenant headship. These words proclaim the opposite, that is the redemption, the atoning, or the restoration of what was lost in the first Adam. And how would this happen? Well, ultimately, this would come through covenant headship. The second covenant, or the second Adam, would make possible, through covenant headship, the covenant to be restored, indeed established that covenant which was lost in the first Adam in the garden. And of course, who would do this but Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Isaac, the son of Jacob, and so forth. (coughs) May God give you the dew of heaven (coughs) and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. In this blessing, there is a claim to the fullness, fruitfulness of the land. Of course, that would presume ownership as well. And at this time, Jacob is a mere sojourner. Esau too, for that matter. Nevertheless, in the promise is the assurance that the title deed is theirs and rightfully theirs and generationally would come in to the, uh, would come in to the claim of the people of God. That is to say, one day, this world, now by... Uh, in temporal degree is the reign of Satan and uh, the enemy is allowed to mess with things. Nevertheless, his deed ultimately belongs to the church, to God and his people. Therefore, we have this promise, ours as sure as it was Jacob's, by God's sovereign hand, that the dew of heaven will yield to us the fatness of the earth. And this ultimately will be manifest in the new heavens and new earth, but provisionally will be manifest as the word of God goes forth changes hearts, and by extension, changes minds, changes society, and brings into conformity every area of life and thought to the obedience of Jesus Christ. To the degree that that has happened and is happening now and will ultimately happen in the future is this passage coming true. The content of the blessing of Jacob, the dew of heaven, the fatness of the earth, the plenty of grain and wine, the provision, the promise, the land ownership, and the title deed to the created realms will be Jesus Christ, our Jesus Christ, and belong to him and his dominion agents, you and me, who now seek to obey that first command in a redeemed way, be fruitful, to multiply, replenish the earth for his name and for his glory. Thank you. Secondly, authority. 
Verse 29, let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's son, sons bow down to you. In this promise is a prophecy of authority. Godly rule, ultimately promised for all in Christ who have escaped the second death is spoken of in Revelation 20. If you want to, you could turn there quickly with me. You could ask yourself, when will Jacob's promise come to pass in fullness? And it, it, it does come to pass along the way, but in full measure in Revelation 20, verse 6. Passages such as these declare as much. Here we have this. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. This is preceded by this picture language that declares the authority of God ultimately manifest, demonstrated in the activity, all history marching forward to the promise of Jacob secured for those who are in Christ. I saw souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or its image or had received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended, for this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. Now ultimately, that's where the blessing of Jacob comes to its fullness. But along the way, powerful fulfillment happened as well. Consider generationally what happened in the case of Joseph. Joseph, Joseph of course, was Jacob's son. Did he not fulfill these words? Let the people serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. You see, the promises of God are to be taken in a generational context. And in a generational context, truly, Joseph fulfilled these very words, in both in dream and fulfillment, in Egypt, when eventually his brothers, who once sold him into slavery, lied about him, deceived their father, bloodied his robe, and so on and so forth, came back on their knees begging for the food that the wisdom vested in Joseph had allowed him to store following God's word and wisdom. And in this way, the promise to Jacob was fulfilled provisionally in time, giving the fatness of the earth, plenty of grain and wine into the storehouses of uh, Joseph in spite of the famine, all the while compelling peoples to serve him, nations to bow, even Egypt, so to speak, itself, as well as his entire family in that incident. So it's powerful, is it not, to see the content of what was promised, in the, a promised blessing that Isaac delivered and its fulfillment, both provisionally in history and ultimately at the end. How would these things come to pass? Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Here is a blessing which assumes covenant headship. The blessings of the federal head flow to those in covenant bond with the appointed son. It is to say, if you are part of Jacob's family, you will be blessed. If you are of the seed of Abraham, you lay claim to his inheritance and his promises. And furthermore, by extension and application, if you are in Jesus Christ, you are an inheritor of his estate. That which, he died, that which is bequeathed to you, granted to you, 
that you lay claim to in his will, so to speak, upon his death. And in this way, the blessing of Jacob is ours for everyone who is in Christ. Ultimately speaking, those who oppose Jesus Christ, and because of that oppose us, they will one day be cast out of the presence of the Lord forever into a lake of fiery judgment. Nevertheless, on the other hand, those who join with us in identity and family allegiance, they will be blessed because those who are in Christ receive the blessings of Christ. That's the content of the blessing of Jacob. Point number three, conflict. We're considering the blessing of Jacob in light of context, content, and now conflict. Verse 30, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, you know, he exits the room, tent. It isn't long until his brother comes in. His father, and he, he comes in with this piping hot food, this delicious meal that he's prepared. 31, he, he saw, also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. He said to his father, Father, let my father arise and eat my son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. <clears throat> Who are you? Notice, first of all, in this conflict, it's preceded by counterfeit, seeking counterfeit favor. So the terms of this covenant meal, as we mentioned before, were as follows. Prepare me a meal, and I will bless you. So there is... In this kind of perverted idea that Isaac came up with, there was a condition. You provide the meal, I'll provide the blessing. That's a twisting of the gospel. We talked about at the Lord's table, Jesus Christ provides the meal. And through the meal provided by Jesus, the blessing is secured. There is no meal, there is no sacrifice that we could bring to the Lord of our own ability and merit that will secure the covenant blessing. Even if Isaac leads Esau to believe that, it's not true. So Esau, all excited, after all my dad told me to, brings the meal that he thinks will earn him favor and the right to the covenant blessing. And he is rejected. He is denied. Why? Because by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not by works of righteousness. Otherwise, you would be able to boast about it. Don't read into this too far, but it is sort of interesting, at least to illustrate, that when Jacob comes, he brings a meal prepared by his mother, albeit it's a scheme, a trick, and his mom prepared it and so forth. But there are times when sacrifice versus sacrifice illustrates a, con a contrast. Take Cain and Abel, for instance. Abel brings a worthy sacrifice, a sacrifice that acknowledged that this is just a type of what God ultimately will provide, requiring the shedding of innocent blood as a substitute covering for sin whereas Cain brings of the fruits of his own endeavors and striving and stewardship of the field. Kids, which sacrifice did God bless? Was it Cain's or Abel's? Which sacrifice did God bless? Abel's, that's correct. Abel's sacrifice was recognized. Why? Same thing. Because only that sacrifice prepared by another, that is the substitute blood of a stand-in lamb or sacrifice that Jesus is for us, is the key to salvation. So this was one of the problems that Esau had. He sought favor by counterfeit means. I need to correct the record from a prior sermon. Um, I told you before that Esau sought a wife from the Ishmaelites just to spite his parents. That's not quite right. Later in Genesis 28, 7, 
I was, I was corrected in closer study this week. It says verse 8, So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. So you see there, and closer read, that um, Esau's attempt is to curry favor, to gain the favor of his parents by marrying a daughter that they approve of. But again, it's seeking favor by counterfeit. It's interesting that he, doesn't, that he goes to the line of the flesh, as it were, Ishmael, and there again you have a picture that trying to earn favor outside of the only means, that is grace alone, that God has designed and ordained, only leads to confusion and to condemnation. And thus we have it in the case of Esau. This is a conflict. The conflict continues. Esau relies on counterfeit favor. And then he's met with this question, who are you? And it's a profound indeed. He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. You know who I am. I'm the one who by birth is deserving of this blessing. I'm the one who you promised that if I bring you a meal, I'll get it. I'm Esau, your son, your favorite, the manly one, remember? The one who by his own strength and merit can, knows his way around the woods and can take care of himself. This reminds us of what Paul would say in Romans chapter 2 later on in the New Testament. He's not a Jew who is one outwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart. It's not by natural birth order. It's not by accomplishment that sets apart a covenant son. But instead, it's by election. Paul goes to say this further in Romans chapter 9. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. This was to demonstrate that it's not the will, the means and mechanism of man that secures the blessing, but indeed the will of God in predestining and choosing by his grace and mercy whom he will. After all, he says, I will, mercy, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. Therefore, he hardens Pharaoh's heart for his sovereign purposes. So this question of who are you is significant. Sure, you may be my oldest son according to the flesh. You may be the presumptive heir according to culture, but you are not in good standing with the Lord who, who identifies his own by a heart change, not by an accomplishment through the flesh. This conflict or these circumstances do not lead Esau to repent, but instead they move him to bitter resentment. The conflict only grows. He cries out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. Is this a cry of repentance? What do you guys think? Yes or no? Is he? No, you are correct. It is not a cry of repentance. Later, this, passage, this little section closes with another bitter cry. 38, Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O oh, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. A bitter resentment filled his heart. Hebrews 12, 17, and the prior verses tell us, do not be like Esau in indulging things like the appetites of the moment. Uh, what's in view there in Hebrews is sexual immorality, who sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. That's the situation that is representative that the author of Hebrews refers to. Said later there was found no repentance for him, though he sought it, that is the blessing you could say, with tears. Esau wants the blessing so bad, he screams in anguish tears of bitter resentment. Please, 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 please. You can almost imagine him 
and just a puddle of angry tears squirting from both his eyes on knees worn with the landscape of the tent outside of Jacob's home there. Please bless me. But this was not repentance. This was these were tears of bitter resentment. And how do we know this? Because we get a window into his heart in verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. A window into the heart of Esau reveals his murderous intentions. I didn't know this until my study this week, but did you know that Herod was, according to the lineage of Esau, that's right, Herod, the one who declared war on the babies of Bethlehem, two years and under, he was an Edomite. He was a descendant of Esau. That is significant because what it illustrates is the conflict pictured all the way back in Genesis 3, the seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman, and then recapitulated, if you will, here, Jacob versus Esau, recalling Cain versus Abel, and then forward in history, Herod versus Jesus. You see this tension, this conflict between the unbeliever and the believer? There's, there's war. And it's only reconciled one way. That war between the unbeliever and the believer is only reconciled by the Prince of Peace. Both, two people, when two people surrender to Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, the walls of separation are brought down. Prior conflicts, intractable uh, war and animosity and anger and resentment and bitterness and murderous hearts and vengeance, they're done away with, washed away by the grace, the perspective of grace that comes through submitting to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Since Esau's heart was bitter and hard and did not submit to God's sovereign intention in the Messianic covenant line, he failed to obtain the promise. And instead, he received another assurance that he would forever be in conflict with his brother. And this is the same kind of conflict that we see all the way coming to a head when Herod takes issue with Jesus Herod would threaten his reign. Herod wants the birthright, if you will, to rule his territory. And this baby, according to prophecy, may represent a threat to that. So what's he going to do? He's going to kill everybody in that age bracket from the place where he comes. His plans prove unsuccessful, but they do demonstrate Genesis 3 coming home to roost, especially in that moment when the Messiah had arrived. Praise the Lord. He preserved a helpless little baby, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, against a powerful king with all the swords that he could possibly you know, hope to command at his disposal. And once again, the covenant triumphed in spite of the formidable odds. Praise the Lord. Final point this morning. Considering the blessing of Jacob in light of the context, the content, the conflict, and now the contrast. Finally, <clears throat> Isaac concedes to Esau's cries and begging. And Isaac, his father, answered him and said, verse 39, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Does that sound like a blessing to you? No, it doesn't, does it? Away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be. So go ahead and live in a wilderness where you could not hope to grow crops and gain any yield. 
and uh, go ahead and find the most drought-ridden area and take residence there, not even so much as the dew of heaven to give you a harvest in season. And then more than that, how about this? Embrace a life of perpetual conflict. By your sword you shall live. Not a blessing. You see what God has done here is he has overridden Isaac's intentions. And it's striking, especially in this second quote-unquote blessing, because here, instead of blessing his favorite son, the privilege, the, you know, the one that he preferred according to the flesh, the one that he played favorites with, instead of doing that, instead, is his profession, his pronouncement, pronouncement is overridden by the Spirit of God, and he declares rightly a condemnation and judgment over the unrepentance of Esau. And he says it will manifest itself in these three ways. Esau, in his unrepentant state, can look forward to the following. Being a victim of nature, if you will. A victim of his circumstances. So you are a victim of nature left to your own devices, his sword, as a perpetual covenant enemy. Does this not describe us before we came to Christ? We're at one time enemies of the Lord. We were victims to our circumstances, left to our own devices as perpetual covenant enemies until we repented of our bitter hardness of heart like Esau and declared our allegiance, humbling ourselves, confessing our sin, and declaring that Christ alone, the son of Jacob, as it were, is our Messiah. Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be. So now you'll be basically a slave to your environment. The temporal judgments for sin will manifest themselves in hard living, in drought, in privation. This is a dominion reversal. It's a reinstatement of the original curse. Whereas Jacob will have dominion over the earth and will be blessed by its yield, the earth will have dominion over Esau and he will have to wield his sword and by the sweat of his brow and at the pain of perhaps even killing at different times, try to secure his own survival. Why? Because he's a victim of a fallen world, being unrepentant and remaining in his sin. He's left to his own devices. Verse 40, by your sword you shall live. So this could represent, of course, hunting by his weapons. He will have to secure his meal. But it also probably means far more. In certain cases, Esau will no doubt take the lives unjustly of marauding bands or traveling caravans just to secure a meal to survive for him, his family, and his people. Thus, by the yielding of the sword, uh, Esau will survive. He is left to his own devices. By your sword you shall live. Is this true today? I submit to you this phrase, by your sword you shall live, is in fact the foundation of Marxism. Oh, really? You might ask? Yes, it is. On Marxism, the assumption is that justice and salvation hinges upon equal distribution of power, of means, and opportunity, and it's accomplished by the totalitarian state. In other words, if we're to secure our hope for salvation and justice by our own devices, we end up living by the sword. We make an idol out of the state, we grant total authority to the collective, and we seek to redress our grievances and to secure our hope for the future by means of our own devices. And as is prophesied in the case of Esau, it always leads to death. 
always leads to death. I don't care if it's the promise for your daily bread tomorrow or of your eternal life after you die. There is only one way, truth, and life, and anything short of faith in that reality is sin and sin that leads to death. The wages of sin is death. And if you live and secure your means of hope for tomorrow or hope for the future by your own devices, you are left to wield the sword. The only thing you have to work with is power and human power and ability, ambition, and so on and so forth. And thus, intractable, forever conflict is the curse on humankind again, unless and until we repent and believe in Jesus Christ, who is the Prince of Peace. He sets us free from being a victim to our fallenness and condemn and condemnation of hell and a victim to the fallen world and subject just as victims of nature, no hope for dominion ever. He sets us free from relying on our own devices, whether it's the strength of our own intellect or our own hand and the sword of the modern state. And he ransoms us from our covenantal enemy status. You shall serve your brother, but when, he grow, when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. It's almost kind of a recapitulation of Genesis 3, 15 and 16, where the curse is pronounced over the woman. Uh, you know, your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. In other words, intractable conflict will follow the home unless they're in right standing, unless the covenant is restored. And so it will be with Esau and Jacob. There will be this conflict until, unless and until the covenant is restored. So yes, we find ourselves at odds with the wicked world even today. We can certainly relate to these circumstances. Nevertheless, if you have yoked your future, your fortunes, to the covenant head, Jesus Christ, who owns this entire globe, has regenerated your soul and will remake the earth, you have hope for ultimate victory in Christ, in your covenant head. And so you can even lay your head down on the sword of martyrdom with absolute confidence. And you can praise the Lord when he delivers you from your persecutors to live and proclaim his lordship another day, as in the case of Daniel and his friends time and again in wicked and pagan Babylon. Thus, these things that are proclaimed in this text, they have relevance even for us today. Let's close by asking this question. What would repentance look like for Esau? Well, it would take, certainly it would take humility. But Esau would have to do the following. He would have to surrender his quote-unquote rightful claim as he saw it to his own birthright. He would have to believe that God had actually raised up his brother to further the covenant line. He would have to forgive in the case of all this scheming, not uh, arbitrarily, but recognizing that ultimately it was the sovereign hand of God that ordered these circumstances, and he better be thankful for it because if God hadn't overridden the intentions of, intentions of Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and himself, there would be no salvation for him. He'd have to see that. And if the Spirit opened his eyes to realize this, he could come home from his wielding of the sword and destroying his enemies and securing his future and lay it down at the tamarisk tree, as it were, at the oaks of Mamre, as it were, at the altar in Bethel later that Jacob would set up, as it were, and recognize that through these ordained means, even through the lineage of his brother, his own salvation would be secured. 
Wow, that would take some humility, would it not? There were people in Jesus' own family, however, that confessed and believed. His brother James ended up being a great a saint, as it were, a great proclaimer of the gospel. And his repentance was similar. He had to realize that through in his very family, God had ordained that through Jesus Christ, his brother, who happened to also be God in flesh, his own salvation was secured. Is it any harder for you and I to come to, the Christ, to, come to Christ? Does it require the same kind of laying down our pride? The same kind of humility where we say by our own means and by our own idols, there is no salvation. Therefore, we must trust that through man, from man's perspective, weak and foolish ways, God has secured our salvation. And even though the world may laugh at us, though the, uh, you know, all of social media would call you an intolerant hater extremist, you nevertheless take your stand in the, uh, in the lineage of the son of Jacob, the son of David, even Jesus Christ. Yes, for us, it also requires a humility and a repentance and a laying down of our prior claim our right to self-identify, our right to victim status, our right in anger and bitterness to repent and to believe that through Christ alone and rolling our sins on his shoulders and him dying in our stead is our hope for eternal life. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the message of the gospel proclaimed all through the Holy Scriptures. We thank you most of all for its fulfillment in Jesus Christ our Lord. I pray that before your word rightly proclaimed that we would humbly bow i pray lord jesus that you would fill us with your spirit and with salvation as we do so if we have not been saved in the first place i pray for those who have lord identified with you in your transgressions and received lord's sweet salvation the assurance of pardon in your blood dear jesus that we would be encouraged to stand remind us through the pages of your scripture that your mysterious ways are powerful. And in the end, you secure your plan and purposes without fail, in perfect time, with absolute precision, and that to be counted among yours and your own is the greatest privilege of all time. And we will be celebrating as much for all eternity. Thank you, Lord, for your holy scriptures. I pray that they would uh, do a work within us to encourage our faith and call the lost to repentance and faith in the first place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.